Luke 23, we won't get there for about 45 minutes, but you can be there for... (laughs) We actually might be in Romans and Hebrews probably before we get to Luke 23, but put put a marker at Luke 23. And we're on Lesson 181, The Victory Finish Part 2, 181A, Victory Finish Part 2. If you were not here last week and heard Part 1, I would strongly suggest that you get the CD and listen to it. It took us 11 years to get to the finish, and he said it's finished, and I really think if you missed that, you should get the CD. Father God, we do come into your presence this morning again in the name of your Son, and we thank you that our every sufficiency in you is found in him. We thank you for those of us who have been born again, that our enemy cannot rise to accuse us in your presence. Because in Christ's blood, our sins have been entirely washed away. We thank you that we can stand before you boldly in grace. And as we now come apart from the world about us, we ask that you would grant us a concentrated meditation on the things of Christ, the deep things of Christ, and on him alone. I ask that you would protect the atmosphere of this hour so that nothing would hinder or disturb your spirit. And no one would rob a nothing, phones or, or whatever, sirens, nothing would rob from the blessings that you have for us today. May our souls be satisfied as we feast on the bread of life. And may Christ himself look today down at us and be satisfied in the result of his finished work as we who are the fruit of his atonement work grow in our love and in our devotion to him, and in our Christ-likeness. May his heart rejoice at our hunger to know him better as we consider this morning that unique death of his for us. And Father, I would ask too that we may each rest entirely on what your son has done and not attempt in any way to add our own works to what was finished for us. And now we ask that you would do by your spirit that work of sanctifying us into the image of your son, in whose name we pray. Amen. What we came to understand in our last lesson on the Lord's sixth cross saying, Te telestai, it is finished, is that he was not referring to himself being finished. He didn't say, I am finished. He wasn't referring to his life being finished. But he was referring to certain things being accomplished, finished. One such thing was his lifelong obedience to his father, which culminated in his obedience even unto death and even unto the death of the the cross, the cruel, horrific, humbling death of the cross. Another thing, and we spent a lot of our lesson last week talking about this, another thing that was completed was all the messianic prophetic scriptures up to this point, and also the revelation of his father to mankind was accomplished. His incarnation was finished. And his sufferings were finished. But the central thing on his mind when he said it is finished was what? The atonement, salvation, providing salvation for man. Now, do we remember earlier in his earthly ministry when he said these words? He said, for even the son of man came not to be ministered unto, but to minister and to give his life a ransom for many. Now, when his apostles heard those words, we can be sure that 
they didn't really have a theological comprehension of what he was saying. I'm sure when he said, even the Son of Man came not to be ministered unto, they were a little disappointed because they, the Son of Man was his messianic term for himself, the one he used the most. And they thought when the Messiah came, he probably would be ministered unto. He was the king of Israel. Why wouldn't people? And they wanted to, him to be ministered unto so that they at his right and left hands would also be ministered unto. So I'm sure that shocked him. You know, he didn't come to be ministered unto, but to minister to others. But this part, I'm sure they didn't get. That he also went on to say basically that he would, he came to earth to give his life to release slaves. To give his life to be a ransom for many. To pay the ransom for those who were in bondage to sin and death. And there he was, of course, talking about his atonement work. So before we move to discuss the last utterance of the Lord from the cross, his final and seventh cross saying, which was, Father, into thy hands I commend my spirit. Before we get to that, I want to talk a little bit more about the atonement because there is a great deal of misunderstanding about this matter. Maybe not by most of you, but believe me, there is a lot of misunderstanding out there in the world today, even within Christendom. Now, as you look at that question in front of you, I wonder how you would answer those two questions. It's really one question, but two parts. Look at it and think in your mind right now how you would answer that question, okay? And then at the end of our time together, I wonder if you'll have changed your mind about your answer. There are, for example, people who sincerely think that when the Lord died, he was completing what the Old Testament sacrificial system had begun. They believe that the Old Testament Levitical system, with its God-ordained priesthood, the Levitical priesthood, and all of the sacrifices, began the work of salvation, you know, began atonement for sins, but Christ was the one who, when he came along, finally finished what the priests of the Old Testament had begun. In other words, under God's divine instructions, the prescribed priesthood of the Jewish people was in the continual process of chipping away at the big problem of sin and the forgiveness of sin. Each and every sacrifice chipped away a little bit more at sin. And every Yom Kippur, every day of atonement, took another chunk, a little chunk, out of sin. And then, you know, finally, Jesus came, the promised seed of the woman, the promised Messiah, and his work on the cross was the culminating conclusion of all that had been going on for centuries. He completed the work of the entire Levitical system. Now, there are many people who believe that notion. And if I probably went on right now and told you that it is true, I wonder how many of you would agree with me. Say, okay, maybe just because you trust me. I don't know. <laughs> but I know yesterday when a lot of the women looked at those questions, they agreed with the first one and said, yes, Jesus finished what the Old, the Old Testament Levitical system started. But don't swallow that because it isn't true. 
It is not true. I just gave you the answer for the first question, all right? <laughs> Jesus Christ did not complete the work of the entire Levitical system. He did not finish something that all those priests had begun. The atonement of sins was begun on the cross and finished on the cross. He did away with the need for covering of sin because he once for all cleansed away sin. The shadows all disappeared in the blazing cleansing light of the sun, S-O-N, Son of God. And I'm going to ask you a question that might help with this, uh, with this misconception. Let's ask ourselves this question. What if, what if there never had been a Levitical system? What if God had never prescribed the Old Testament priesthood and there had never been a tabernacle and there had never later on been a temple There had never been a high priest. There had never been all the Levites and all their rituals and all the millions upon millions of sacrificed rams, bulls, and goats. What if none of that had ever ever been instituted by God? Here's the question. Could the Lord Jesus Christ, the promised Messiah, still have come to earth and saved people all by himself? Yes, absolutely. Could the Lord Jesus still have saved us? Yes. Or some people would say, you know, it was needful for all of that to begin. Actually, all the way back to that first animal that was slain by God himself in order to cover the sin of Adam and Eve. And, you know, the the blood sacrifice that was uh, offered by Abel. Was it necessary that everything begin way back then, right after the fall which the Lord Jesus needed to then come and finish. Did he finish what the, that atonement work that was already begun? No, all of that was just shadows, wasn't it? Ways that pictured what he would do. But he did not finish what was begun. And to understand this, and I really want you to understand this, we need to have a clear understanding about salvation regarding Old Testament believers. How were Old Testament people saved? back then. I really don't want to, I don't want to move on in our study until we have really fully profited from the significance of the Lord's words, it is finished, because those words are just so important. We need to understand that he was not completing what the Old Testament system began, and that's why it's important to know how Old Testament saints, how Old Testament people were saved. How were they saved? Well, this isn't in your books. If you want to take notes, you can try. Um, one, one po- I'm going to give it to you in five points. One kind of blends into the other. But uh, as we pointed out last week, this is point one, it's absolutely essential for us to keep in mind that the entire Levitical system was merely a shadow of good things to come. Remember, we read that in Hebrews 10.1. The whole Levitical system, all the priests, everything they did was a shadow of good things to come. It was not the reality. In Hebrews 8.5, we are told that the priest served the copy. They were just serving a copy. When they went into the temple, they were serving a copy of heavenly things. You know, God said to Moses, 
make all things, when he told him how to make the tabernacle and all the furniture and all that stuff and told the priests what to do, he said it was according to a pattern. A pattern. Where is the reality? In the heavenlies. There is a temple in heaven. There's an altar in heaven. Those are the realities up there. All the Levitical system down here and the tabernacle and the rituals, all of that was just a shadow of the good things to come, the realities. Number two, it was important that the Israelites believe God about the shadows. All true Old Testament people, whether they were Jewish or Gentile, genuinely saved people were those who believed God about the realities that all those shadow things portrayed. You see, they believe, for example, that there is just one true and living God and that he was Jehovah God. And they believed in the promise of his coming Savior, the Messiah. That was essential. They had to believe in the right God, the true God, and the promise of his coming Savior. They had to believe that man is separated from God by his sin. They even understood that the wages of sin is death. Now, it's not worded like that in the Old Testament. It's not worded like that until you get to Romans, the New Testament book of Romans. But they had the words that God spoke to Adam when he said, in the day that thou sinnest, thou surely shalt die. That's basically the wages of sin is death. You know, when you eat at the fruit of the tree of knowledge of good and evil, you know, you disobey me, that sin, you shall surely die. And we have that message also in Isaiah 9, verse uh, 59, verse 2. I can't read there. Uh, where it says, your iniquities have separated between you and your God. And other places in the Old Testament. They knew that the wages of sin is death, and they had to believe that. A true believer did not argue with God about those things. He believed God. You know, if you go to the New Testament chapter of Hebrews 11, it all, it's, it's all about faith, isn't it? By faith, Abel. By faith, Abraham. By faith, Enoch. By faith, uh, Noah and Sarah and all the rest of the Old Testament. It was all by faith. They didn't argue with God. They believed him by faith. They understood that the life of the flesh is in the blood. And they did things God's way by shedding the blood of an innocent animal to cover their sins. They knew that there was no remission of sins without the shedding of blood. Three, Old Testament saints were declared righteous on the basis of their faith in God, and that he would one day reveal the realities. Old Testament people were not saved by their works. And then, you know, in the New Testament, we're saved by our faith. A lot of people, I'm telling you, if you go to churches and ask people, there are a lot of people who would say that, that Old Testament saints were saved by works, and now it's the age of grace, and we're saved by faith. But it's always been by faith from the very beginning Adam and Eve had to believe in faith in his promise of a Messiah they believed in God they believed in his way of covering them with you know the shedding of blood of an innocent animal they tried to do it their own way with works of fig leaves you know but it's always always been by faith not by works so that is a terrible and you know this is the whole 
meaning of, of, of Romans chapter 4. Keep your finger in Luke 23 and let's go over to Romans 4, all right? Romans 4 is where Paul addresses the question about Old Testament saints. And he goes all the way back to Abraham. And he says that Abraham believed God. Look at Romans 4, verse 3. For what saith the scripture? Romans 4, 3. Abraham believed God and it was counted unto him for righteousness. Abraham and all of the Old Testament saints were saved the very same way that you and I are saved. The object of their faith was the same. The object of their faith was God and what he revealed about the promised Messiah, Savior. What God revealed then, of course, was not as full and complete as what we have today. That's why there's a lot more miracles in the Old Testament. You know, the miracles confirmed that it was God speaking through his prophets and all that. You know, we might say, well, we wish we had miracles, more miracles today. But we don't need them because we have the completed scripture. That's a greater thing than miracles by far. So it wasn't as full as what we have today since Christ has come and we have the complete scripture. The content was not as full back then, but they were believing in the same person, God. When they saw the shadows that testified of the realities and in faith they offered their sacrifices with hearts repentant of their sin, believing what God said about sin, and believing God would cover them, they were declared righteous. You see, Abraham was saved. He was declared righteous before he was circumcised. Years before he was circumcised. He wasn't saved by his work of circumcision. He wasn't saved by surgery. (laughs) Just as we're not saved today by being baptized, that's a work. I mean, that's just to to identify us with Christ. We're not saved by church membership or taking the Eucharist or whatever. We're saved by faith or by grace through faith. Number four, they were anticipatorily forgiven of their sin. That's a big word that just means they were forgiven in advance for their sin. In Romans 4, 6, look at verse 6. Paul there is quoting from David. David is Old Testament, isn't he? King David. In Psalm 32, David talked about the blessings of the man to whom God imputes righteousness without works. You see that? Without works. Old Testament saints were imputed righteousness by faith. No works. In verse 7, David wrote, Blessed are they whose iniquities are forgiven and whose sins are... What's the next word? Covered. Remember my little dog doo-doo example last week? If you weren't here, you're really wondering what I'm talking about. (laughs) Their sins were just covered. They weren't cleansed. And that's what David said. David knew that. They were just being covered. This was all anticipatory, you know, looking forward to the time when Jesus would cleanse them. The promised Messiah would cleanse them. And this is speaking about Old Testament believers. They were not held eternally accountable for their sins. They were forgiven by God who knew 
that one day with a surety. Remember Isaiah 46 verses 9 and 10? My counsel will stand. What I say is going to happen is going to happen. I know the end from the beginning. You see, he knew his son would come and atone for sin and be able to say it is finished. So that the Old Testament saints were not held accountable eternally for their sins. They were temporarily covered, knowing one day they would be cleansed. Number five, the atonement for that forgiveness and the eternal dismissal of sins was not the work of the Old Testament priests and that whole Levitical system. The atonement for the sins of the Old Testament believers was the atonement that would be accomplished by the coming Christ. All of the ceremonies and all of the rituals that they went through, the whole tabernacle, tabernacle temple system was all perspective. It was all looking forward to the coming. What do we do from where we are in history? It's all retrospective, right? We look back at what he did. They were looking forward to what he would do. They had to have faith in anticipation. We have faith in, you know, going back, whatever the word would be. Now, Romans 3.25 is probably still on the same page where you are, but Romans 3.25 is a very important verse. We all know Romans 3.23 by heart, for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. But I wonder how many of us know Romans 3.25. You probably read it and say, Ew, what does that mean? <laughs> Let me read it. God, was, well, whom God set forth, and that's speaking of Christ. Who did God set forth to be a propitiation? Christ, his son. So it's basically saying God set forth Christ to be the propitiation. What does that mean? It means the satisfaction of his wrath on sin. God was never satisfied with all the blood of the bulls and goats. He wanted to be satisfied. The wages of sin is death. He needed to be, you know, having a, a propitiation that would appease his wrath against sin. So God sent forth Christ to be that satisfaction, the propitiation, through faith in his blood to declare his righteousness for the remission the forgiveness of sins that are what? Say that. Passed through the forbearance of God. Now that really sounds like a confusing verse, but here's what it's saying. By way of God's forbearance or his patience, God had passed over the sins of those who believed in him in the past. It was forbearance on his part in that he had not yet provided the effectual, actual atonement that would put Old Testament believers into a oneness with him. See, they're just covered, but they're not perfected. They're not positionally one with him, as we are today. You know, Christ said, I in them and them in me, and I'm in you, Father, and you're in me. Now we're one with Christ and with God, aren't we? Well, they weren't. They weren't perfected. They were just covered. But so it was, it was his patience in that they were not cleansed and made positionally holy and righteous. They were awaiting that ultimate day of atonement that would come by way of the great high priest, the Christ, when they could finally appear in God's holy presence in the third heaven. 
The third heaven is where God lives. You know, there's the atmospheric heaven, the first heaven. There's the stellar heaven of the universe and the galaxies. And then there's the third heaven where God resides. Well, the Old Testament uh, saints could not appear in God's holy presence because they weren't cleansed yet. They were only covered. So where were they awaiting that ultimate day of atonement? They were waiting in paradise, the paradise part of Hades. Now, when I say Hades, everybody thinks of hell, but hell and Hades are not the same. Hades consisted of two parts. The wonderful, beautiful part, also called Abraham's bosom, where all the Old Testament saints went, and it was wonderful. It was a paradise, okay? And then there was the other half of Hades, which we really think of as Hades, where all unbelievers to this day go when they die. Their spirits go to Hades, where they await the great throne judgment, the great white throne judgment, where they will eternally be cast into hell, which is also called the lake of fire. So all Old Testament saints were uh, waiting for that day when they would be able to go into God's holy presence. And when did that day occur? When Jesus died. What happened after he died? Immediate, well, of course, his body just died, uh, but his spirit lived. He never died. The real Jesus never died, just like we never die. And he immediate, his spirit went to where he had promised the thief he would meet him today. And he had to do it before the sun went down, so it would be today. So immediately, a spirit went into paradise, met the thief there, and then it tells us in Ephesians 4, 8, that he ascended on high and he led a multitude of captives up into the third heaven. Now, don't think of them as prisoners' captives. That just happens to be what it says there, but it means a multitude of those who were waiting. He took all the Old Testament believers, that included John the Baptist. He was there, too. He was an Old Testament believer. Took them all up into God's holy presence. Don't you think that was a wonderful day? And now the paradise section of Hades is empty. Because when we die, absent from the body, present with the Lord. Beautiful, isn't it? Okay, uh, so Jesus did not complete what the Old Testament priests began. He began the reality of what they only prefigured. There was no beginning of the actuality of the atonement until the Lord Jesus began to shed his sinless blood. There was no beginning of the reality of genuine oneness with God until Jesus began to shed his perfect sinless blood. There was no appeasement, no satisfaction of God's wrath against sin, his righteous judgment against sin until the Lord Jesus began to shed his sinless blood. So back to our question. What if, what if none, none of the shedding of animal blood and the entire Old Testament Levitical system, what if that had never been instituted by God? Could Jesus Christ, the promised Messiah, still have come to earth and saved all men who believe in him by himself? What's the answer? Yes, now you have the answer to that extra homework question, the first part of it. It was not necessary for all the priests to precede him before he could then come and finish it. In other words, he did finish the atonement work that, that uh, he, didn't, he did not finish the atonement work that was already begun. So the answer is, 
he didn't finish the atonement work that was already begun by the Old Testament priests, and yes, he could and did the atonement all by himself. And he did it in six hours. He began that work on the cross, and he finished that work on the cross. Okay, you get that? And that brings us to the second thing that is often misunderstood about the atonement, and this is really probably more relevant to our day. Did you know that there are, and there have been for centuries, literally millions and even billions, if we go all the way through church history, billions of people who believe that the priests of their church are completing what Jesus merely began? And that's the second part of your question, the number two part. Are the priests, quote-unquote, in Christendom, completing what Jesus merely began? Well, no, that belief is not at all in agreement with his own words on the cross when he said, it is finished. (laughs) It's also not in agreement with the teaching of the entire New Testament scripture regarding a completed atonement. Nonetheless, there are a lot of people, a lot of people who are taught to believe that that Jesus, what Jesus began on the cross, New Testament priests are completing. They are taught that at baptism, all of the sins that preceded the person's baptism are removed. But after baptism, when a person sins, he has need for the ongoing continual sacrifice of Christ by priests. You know that's what goes on every time there's a mass. Now, my church I grew up in wasn't called a mass, but that's the same thing that was going on. It was the continual re-sacrificing of Christ. Why do you think there are churches that still have Jesus on the cross? They're putting him to an open shame. Our cross should be empty because it was finished. He's seated at the right hand of God the Father. He doesn't continue to be re-sacrificed like a victim. But that's what's going on, and they're re-sacrificing him as uh, part of the continuing work of atonement. Also, they, uh, they believe that um, the, the individual has to continue to do good deeds, that he's saved by his meritorious works. And even after all this, after what Christ did on the cross and after the re, you know, continuing sacrificing of Christ by the priests on behalf of the individual and uh, even after the individual's good works of a lifetime, and paying money to the church, etc., etc., even then, in the end, after the person dies, (laughs) there is still to be an experience of a certain amount of time of punishment for one's sins in a place called purgatory. So, here's what they teach. Baptism rids of all pre-baptism sins, which can't be very many because they baptize babies. (laughs) But following baptism... Sins must be expunged by the priests and by the person's own good works and then some time spent in purgatory. The amount of time there depends on how many sins yet need to be burned away. You see, this viewpoint has Jesus beginning the atonement, beginning it, but the priests and the person himself and his good works and purgatory finishing that work. Do you get it? Are you still with me? You hanging in there? All right, is this true? Not 
at all. Not at all. You can search the New Testament from uh, Matthew to Revelation, and you will never find any class of clergy in the church that is called priests. There's no mention of the ordination of priests. There's no mention of the duties of priests. There's no mention of the, the, um, the clothing of the priests. Um, whatever. None of the apostles were called priests. Timothy wasn't called a priest. Titus wasn't called a priest. Yet there is a New Testament priesthood. There is a New Testament priesthood, but it is no distinctive class of clergy. It consists of who? All believers. All believers. We are now, because of Christ's finished work, we now have access beyond the veil into God's very presence. Do you know when I learned that, what a revelation it was for me back in my 20s? Because the priest in my church was the only one who could go back, you know, into the holy of holies, so to speak. The rest of us were just out here. We couldn't go back there. And when I read the scripture and the Holy Spirit enlightened me that I can go boldly before the throne of grace myself, because now I'm a little priestess. <laughs> that was so wonderful. And that's the way it is. You know, we are called in 1 Peter 2.9 a royal priesthood. I got to thinking this week, I had two revelations this week. I don't know why it's taken me 40 years as being a Christian to have these, but I had them. One was, you know, in the Old Testament, no one person could be prophet, priest, and king. The only one who was ever all three positions was who? Jesus Christ. Now, there was one who came close, that mysterious Melchizedek, because he was a king of Salem, Jerusalem, and also priest of the Most High God. He was king and priest. Of course, he prefigured Christ, didn't he? But do you know that we are all three in Christ? Think about it. We're called a royal priesthood. That means we're royalty. We are, aren't we? Heirs of the king? Aren't we children of the king? Doesn't that make us little princesses or <laughs> queens or whatever? We're royalty, kings. We're a priesthood because we have access directly into God's presence with our sacrifices of a praise. Now, we don't offer sacrifices for sin, do we? No, no man takes that honor to unto himself, it says in Hebrews, to offer sacrifices for sin. We offer the sacrifices and gifts of our praise, the fruit of our lips. We offer the sacrifices of our service, our loving service. In fact, we ourselves are the sacrifice, aren't we? We're living sacrifices, which is our reasonable service. Um, but we're also prophets. Because we're, not that we tell the future, but we do know the future. Don't we? And we, we proclaim the truth. So we are prophet, priest, and king in Christ. And no Old Testament person could ever be that. It's just so special. There are no priests who complete what Jesus finished. The, uh, what, what he began. What he himself began, he completed. That's why he said, Tetelestai, it is finished. All priests, and priestesses today are obsolete. Even the Levitical priesthood is obsolete. If, if there's priests and priestesses, I got news for them. They're fabricating their own job. 
They've been done away with. It's anti-biblical. The reality has come, so there is no need for the shadows that prefigure it. You know, the, the Old Testament priesthood was a shadow of good things to come. What's the good thing that came? The royal priesthood of us, of all believers, Jew and Gentile, anyone can be a a priest today. And get this, neither do you individually by your own works or by trying to keep your own salvation complete what Jesus finished. Think of that, that's true. Now here is the scripture of your extra homework question, Hebrews 12.2. Do you know what Hebrews 12, 2 talks about? It says that Jesus is the author and what? The finisher of our faith. The author is one who began it all. He thought out and he wrote out, wrote out through men, the whole plan of salvation. He's the author of salvation. And he's also the finisher. And finisher there in Hebrews 12.2 comes from the same Greek word that we get, tetelestai. It is finished. The plan of salvation, which depends entirely on the atonement on the cross, was authored and finished by Christ and by Christ alone. He began and finished atonement on the cross. He did not finish something that the Old Testament Levitical priesthood began, and he did not begin something that a non-biblical clergy of priests today are completing, or that any individual by his own works is completing. And there is no such thing as purgatory. He reconciled. He did it. He redeemed. He saved. He propitiated. He atoned completely, entirely, 100% by himself. And guess what? He did it once for all once. He is not to be re-sacrificed every time there is a mass. That puts him to an open shame. And it is on that basis that he did it, he completed it, Once for all, it's on that basis and that basis only that by our faith in that truth, we are declared righteous. The glory you see for him is in that he did it all. That's how he gets the glory. He did it all. We don't share in that glory. All the glory goes to him. And it is a sinful cheapening to the glory of Christ For anyone to attempt to add some paltry little thing to the finished work that he began and finished in six hours, and then when it was accomplished, he commended his own spirit into his Father's care. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. There's nothing we can add. That's why I said, just abide in that truth. Rest in that truth. There's nothing you can do to save yourself. It's all been done for you. And now just give him back your life as, your, as a living sacrifice for what he did. And now we get to today's lesson, okay? Luke 23. I ain't kidding. All right, Luke 23, verse 46. 
And Luke, by the way, is the only one who gives us the Lord's last saying on the cross, the seventh saying. And of course, you'd know there'd be seven, didn't you? Seven, the number of perfection, completion. Luke 23, verse 46. And when Jesus had cried with a loud voice, and we know what he cried in a loud voice from John's gospel, what was it? It is finished. When he had cried that, he said, Father, into thy hands I commend my spirit. And having said thus, he gave up the ghost, gave up his spirit. Now, John adds something. You don't need to turn over there because it's very short. I'll read it for you. But John adds for us. He doesn't tell us what the Lord said, that prayer there. But he does tell us that Jesus bowed his head and then gave up the ghost. And Matthew and Mark both tell us that he, um, he one says he yielded up the ghost and the other says he gave up the ghost. Now, the Lord's words here, his last utterance from the cross, are important because they are his last words before he dies. And the last words of someone we love are usually very important to us, aren't they? They are very important. But especially with the last words of the Savior of our soul for all of eternity be important. Someone's last words also reveal to us, unless they're on a lot of medication in their, you know, in la-la land, but their last words usually reveal something about their character, for men generally die the way that they lived. And deathbed words often reveal that to us vividly. Jesus' last words certainly did portray to us his character and his person. How is that? Well, for one thing, he died praying. He died praying. He died with a prayer on his lips. And it's always a noble thing for somebody to die with a prayer on their lips. Because some people die with curses on their lips. But this is just really natural for Jesus to die with a prayer on his lips, talking to his Father, because he was continually in in communion with his Heavenly Father in a spirit of prayer his entire life. So this is natural for him. The prayer is also important for us in that Jesus again addressed God as Father, which lets us know that he is back in fellowship communion with his Father. He had come out of the other end of his God-forsakenness in hell. You know, his hell of utter darkness. It was pitch black for three hours, and he was really experiencing an eternity of hell for us, and he had that raging spiritual thirst. Remember, at the beginning, the first utterance from the cross, what was it? Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Father, he was in relation, no spiritual relationship. But then in the middle, when he was suffering that hell for us, it was, my God! My God, why hast thou forsaken me? Now we see, you see, this is evidence. He's come out of that. He's come out the other end of hell. And he's back calling him Father. You know, it is very important, very important, that at the time of one's physical death, a person is not spiritually separated from God the Father. You see, Jesus could rest in calm assurance that his father would take care of his spirit because he's back in his, he's back he's in a spiritual relationship with him. He had died. Remember, it was important that to atone for our sins, the wages of sin is death, and there's two aspects of death, right? Spiritual death and physical death. Well, he had already taken care of the spiritual death part of it, and now it was time for the physical death part of paying our wages of sin. But it was very important that he was back spiritually before he died physically. You get that? That's why when you die, it's very important 
that you're right spiritually with the Lord, then you have nothing to fear and you can calmly rest in the Father's care for you, for your spirit. And that's what he gives us that example here. In his last breath, in a human clay vessel, he died trusting God to take care of his spirit. And his prayer expresses that truth to us. And in trusting his spirit into his father's care, he was honoring God. He died honoring God because he was trusting God to take care of his spirit. Now, he wasn't worried at all about his body. And that was just dust, you know, clay. And he even knew he was going to raise it up on the third day. It's not the body to worry about. None of us, you know, it's going to be resurrected one day, a new, wonderful, glorified body. It was a spirit that he was commending to his father's care. He was trusting his father to take care of his spirit, and that was honoring God in that trust and in that faith. He said, Father, into thy hands I commit my spirit. And then, having said his final prayer, he breathed his last. He died at a certain point in time. Passover day at the ninth hour, 3 p.m., after three hours of miraculous, eerie darkness, and after testifying to having been spiritually forsaken by God, so that we would know he did die that aspect of death for us, and after having then set in motion and fulfilling the last pre-death messianic prophecy when he said the words, I thirst, the Lord now in complete control... The Calvary King, in control throughout this whole thing, he died by an act of his own will. You know, all four Gospels tell us that. They tell us of his dying, and they do so in terms that are not normal for somebody dying. John says he bowed his head and gave up the ghost. Mark and Luke say he gave up the ghost. Uh, Matthew says he yielded up the ghost. Not one of them uses normal words for dying. You see, as I've said over and over, he was not a victim of circumstances. He was a victor in control of his entire life and what else? His death. He was in control of his life and his death. He kept himself alive until everything was fulfilled that needed to be fulfilled scripturally. He kept himself alive until the atonement for the sins of the whole world needed only to have his death to seal it. He kept himself alive until it was the hour when the Passover lambs were being slain in the temple. Uh, He chose the day, didn't he? The religious rulers did not want to crucify him on Passover. He chose the day. He chose the hour. He chose the method. And he gave up his own life. No one took it. It was exactly as he said it would be. When did he say that? Well, remember back on the Mount of Transfiguration? When for a little while he let his divine glory show through? You know, it's been veiled in flesh, but he let it show through and three of the disciples saw it. Peter, James, and John. And remember Jesus was up there on that mountain and who was he talking to? Moses and Elijah. And what was the subject of their conversation? Yes, it says in Luke 9.31 that they were talking about his decease, his death. And it says, which he 
would accomplish. He would accomplish it, his death, at Jerusalem. Now, the word decease in the Greek is a very interesting word because it's the word exodus. And that tells us a lot about the Lord's attitude regarding his own death. He viewed his death as his exodus, that which would liberate him, free him from his bondage in a human body. That's a neat way to look at death, isn't it? Because of his love for mankind, he had allowed his divine nature and his glory to be hidden in a human body. And he was anticipating the glorious liberty from that human bondage that he himself would accomplish in Jerusalem at the time of his decease, his exodus. And that's how we should view our own deaths, too. In all things, he sets the example. We should view our deaths, and don't you, the older we get? Some of you young, you're too young yet to appreciate this, but it's kind of like you long for being liberated from these aging, deteriorating, sometimes painful, arthritic, you know, bodies. That's going to be our liberating, you know, like the, the amount of transfiguration. The, re, the word transfiguration is like metamorphosis, like the caterpillar becoming a butterfly. That's what it's going to be like. Yeah, butterfly on your sweatshirt. Where else had he talked about uh, laying down his own life? Well, of course, John 10, verses 17 and 18, he had clarified to his men that no one would take his life from him. He would lay down his life. And he was very clear about that. He said, no man takes it from me. I lay it down of myself, my own volition. I have the authority to do this, he said. This is in John 10 at the end of verse 18. He said, I have the authority to do this. I have the authority to lay down my own life because I have received the commandment from my Father to do so. And then in Mark 10, 45, I've said this verse earlier, but when he said, "Even for even the Son of Man came not to be ministered unto, but to minister and to give his life a ransom for many. What is clearly, clearly involved is that at 3 p.m. on Passover day, the Lord Jesus, by the authoritative command of his Father, by an act of his own will and his own power, took his spirit and handed it to his Father. And that was just absolutely another indication of his complete willingness to do his Father's will. I want you to think about this for a minute. Just Selah. You know, it says in Psalm 40, and it's also repeated over in uh, Hebrews 10, that the pre-incarnate Son of God, this is before he became, you know, a man, before he was born in Bethlehem, these are words he spoke to God. He said, Lo, I come to do thy will, O God. You know, he said, You have prepared for me a body, and uh, I delight to do thy will, O God. Thy law is written in my heart. You know, the only service that is acceptable to God is the service that comes from where? From the heart. God indicts people when their hearts are far from him, regardless of what their lips are saying. I mean, my lips can be saying all kinds of wonderful things and my heart be far from God. God takes no delight in that at all. And he can see the heart. And we can serve him grudgingly, can't we? Do you know, I, I resign Bible study teaching just about every week. <laughs> so I'm convicted here. 
You know what, what God said through Malachi in Malachi 1.13? He said these people, you know, the people, uh, you can imagine, year after year, sacrificing animals and the blood and the mess and the, ooh. And, and the people were serving him, but they were saying in their hearts, oh, what a weariness this is. Do we ever get that way? You know, oh, church again, Sunday, Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday night. I know churches, you know, are so weary of that they don't even do that anymore. It's just Sunday morning. <laughs> Bible study, here it is, Tuesday again. Oh, not homework questions, please. <laughs> but we, you know, we all, we all have those times when we say, oh, what a weariness this is. And uh, we serve grudgingly. However, do you realize that the Messiah could never, even one time in his life, he could never begrudge what he was doing? Why? Because that would be sin. You know, sin is action, attitude, thought, whatever. Not once did he begrudge doing his father's will, even right to the very end. Think about this. Even after six unjust trials, so unfair, and he was completely innocent, and then six hours of the pain of crucifixion. How would you like to be crucified knowing you were completely innocent? And then going through an eternity of hell. Not for your own sins, but for other people's sins. And, you know, I know this isn't possible, but let's say that you then are able to come out the other end of hell. And you've gone through all that. Not being understood, everybody mocking you and the whole world against you. Even God, your father, against you. You come out of an eternity of hell. Don't you think you and I might say, hmm, God, don't you think that was a little bit extreme? <laughs> but the Lord Jesus didn't even have a thought like that in his mind. It is just amazing how sinless he was. And he had to be right to the very end. And so we see him, his last act, was a willing act. Father, not any begrudging, not any bitterness. Into thy hands I commend my spirit. Unbelievable what a Savior we have. And the literal meaning of the Greek word translated yield, when it says he yield, that's also a very interesting word because it's the word dismissed. So (laughs) it's a word that causes us to think of a king, doesn't it? Like a king dismisses his subjects and he dismisses his servants. And that's what the Lord Jesus, the king of the Jews, as it was written on that placard above his head, and as it will be written on his vesture and his thigh, when he returns at his second coming as king of kings, that's exactly what he did. As king, he dismissed his servant, his own spirit, into the hands of his father. He authoritatively dismissed. He was the king in control throughout Calvary, wasn't he? Is that one thing you've learned as we've looked through ever since the way of the cross all the way? Well, he was king all during his life, but even king in his death. Jesus, you see, was not a martyr. He was not a martyr. He was a willing sacrifice. Now, those who murdered him are held responsible for what they did. But technically, technically, we would have to say he was not murdered. He was not murdered. He gave his own life as a willing sacrifice. 
John is the only one, I'm almost done here, John's the only one who tells us about a specific action that gives us evidence that the Lord's death was his own doing. John tells us that after he loudly proclaimed, it is finished, what did he do? He bowed his head and he gave up his ghost, his spirit. So here's the order of events. The loud voice, it is finished, te telestai. Then the final prayer, Father, into thy hands I commend my spirit. Then the bowed head and then the yielding up of his spirit. That's the order. And we want to notice that because it gives us additional evidence of his deity. How is that? Well, for one thing, it was very unusual for a crucifixion victim this long into the process, after six hours, to have the breath and the stamina to say anything loudly. You know, it just took every ounce they had to push against that little stool, the step thing down there, to exhale breath. So if they could talk at all, it was very weak. But for someone to be able to shout out two sayings, which we know he did in the last few minutes, my God, my God, why has thou forsaken me? And it is finished loudly, tells us that this was no mamby-pamby milk toast of a man. Don't ever picture Jesus as a puny man. He was a strong guy. I mean, he walked everywhere. He was strong. Another thing this tells us is that he was nowhere near death. If he had that kind of stamina and power to, to shout out loudly two times, he was nowhere near death, um, which was usually by way of suffocation. Then there is the fact that he bowed his head. His head did not bow, you know, uncontrollably. He bowed his head. This tells us that his head was erect. And most crucifixion victims this far along in the process had their heads hanging, already bowed. But his head was erect, even, you know, after six hours of torture and pain. His purposeful bowing of his head tells us that he had held it up. And this also, again, tells us that this was a man uh, who still had enough strength in his body to do that. So he's nowhere near dying. He would probably go on for many hours. That's why they broke the bones of the other thieves, because they're nowhere near death either. So his head is up. But the bowing of the head, and this is what I like the most, was really his final act of honor and submission to his father. He, I believe he did it very royally, a bow to his father's will. His head didn't just fall forward. He did it calmly reverently, purposely, specifically. He voluntarily bowed his head. And also, think of this. He bowed his head before he yielded up his spirit. Is that how a normal human dies? No. It's the other way around. First, their spirit departs from their body and not at their own willful dismissal either. And then, once the spirit, the life is gone, the head just kind of droops. That's the normal way. To have the order of events that Jesus did, first the purposeful bowing of his head, and then the dismissal of his spirit, again gives us huge evidence of the fact that he was in control. No man took his life from him. The good shepherd willingly laid down his own life for his sheep. 
as the Passover lamb. The good shepherd was the lamb. (laughs) You know, his physical death demonstrated that he truly was human because God can't die. So his physical death demonstrated he was 100% man. However, his manner of death demonstrated that he was God, the God-man. Well, we would expect him to die by way of a supernatural death, wouldn't we? Because didn't he come into this earth, his birth, supernatural, his conception? Came into this earth supernaturally? He left this earth supernaturally. What a mighty God we serve. I want to close by all of us standing and singing together. And I hate to leave this because I can't sing at all, but let's just sing that little chorus, For I Know Whom I Have Believed. All right, stand with me. Y'all know it? If you don't, just move your lips. <laughs> For I know whom I have believed and am persuaded that he is able to keep that which I've committed unto him against that day. <laughs> we can do the same thing. We can commend and commit our spirit into the hands of our Father, because we surely can trust him. And I'm persuaded of that, aren't you? God bless you. Have a wonderful week.